Lord, on this day when we gather as a church to celebrate Christmas, to celebrate the coming of your son to this earth in the form of a child, in the form of a baby, may you allow us to focus in, Lord, on what your text is actually telling us. Would you allow us not only to be informed but impacted by what we study and what we read here today? Would you allow me as your messenger to reflect your truth to the hearts of those who are here, Lord, so that we can grasp how awesome you are, how, how glorious you are, how majestic you are, and how privileged we are to be called your children. Lord, if there is someone here that does not know you as their personal Lord and Savior, they have not tasted of salvation, I, I just pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would have his way. And Lord, that you, in the, the sovereignty of your plan, would draw those who are yours to yourself through the preaching of your word, through the gathering of your church. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, certainly, we recognize that Christmas is about Christ. It is rightly about both the big picture of God's ongoing redemptive plan, reconciling mankind to himself through his Messiah, who ultimately would die on the cross as the sacrifice once for all. That's the, the big picture of God's redemptive plan. But there is the, the specific event of the incarnation of God's Messiah. It is the event where Christ lets go of the privileges of heaven and humbly enters this world, taking upon himself the form of man, a perfect man who would ultimately face temptation like all of us do, and would eventually spend the better part of three and a half years in ministry that would ultimately end in his sacrificial death on the cross for mankind. That is what Christmas is about. But Christmas is also the story about people whom God used in the unfolding of that plan. Simple, ordinary, sinful people. People like Elizabeth, like Zechariah, like Joseph, like Mary. Their stories have been beautifully preserved for us in the Gospels as faithful records of God's story in bringing his Messiah to the earth. Today, we want to focus on one of them, and it's the story of Mary, and in particular, we're going to focus in on what is called the Magnificat. Now, this morning, as we consider this song, as we consider um, this, this beautiful uh, praise that, that Mary gives, um, we want to kind of set the stage a little bit and just think about Mary and think about, uh, about what she brings, so to speak, to the story. Now, you probably are very familiar with the, the popular song now, Mary, Did You Know? How many of you heard that before, right? In fact, many churches are probably singing it here this morning. <clears throat> it's a powerful song, and its first stanza goes like this. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? This child that you delivered will soon deliver you. Now this week, as I was you know, just studying and preparing for today, I, I came across this article written by a Catholic priest, our Catholic father, Father Robert McTeague is his name, and he takes issue with this song because he says it cancels Christmas. Here's what he says, and I'm reading what he's quoted, what he's actually written. While the song has merits of prompting its hearers to reflect on Mary beholding her divine son, lines from the very first stanza actually bring Christmas to a screeching halt. Here are the problem lyrics. Here are the problem lyrics, he says. Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? This child that you delivered will soon deliver you. And he goes on and says, now those lines make sense if Mary is another sinner just like us who needs to be delivered from sin. You see, if Mary is a sinner who, like us, needs a Savior, then the lyricists play on the word 
the liver is both clever and theologically sound. But if Mary is a sinner in need of a savior, then she cannot be the worthy vessel in whom the all-holy God takes on human nature as the word made flesh. See, because in Catholicism, they believe that Mary is what? Sinless. She's without sin. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, you'll immediately see the problem in his thinking. You can't be honest and open up God's word and come to the conclusion that Mary is sinless and not in need of a savior. No, she was a normal Jewish girl like the rest of us who was in need of a savior. You only have to look at verses, well, the the first couple of verses in the Magnificat to come to that conclusion, right? Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my what? Savior. And the scripture gives us clear indication. Not only that, but we find Jesus along with his brothers and there's so many other things that you could talk about here. The, The point here is this, that we can get distorted in our view and our understanding and our appreciation of Mary because of of, of how a religious system has turned her to be something far more than she actually is. And we can actually come to Mary and say, "Mm, I just don't know if I want to listen too much. But here we have such a beautiful, beautiful song that she gives in praise to the, uh, to God for what he is doing and what he has done. What we have in this song is the humble praise of a child of God who is in awe at God's graciousness to her and to his people Israel because he is sending his Messiah, the Savior of the world. Here's the, here's the proposition, wrapping it up together. It's kind of a long statement, but I hope you get the point. Mary's song is a beautiful picture of Christmas worship that is rooted in God. And it should drive us to worship God in the same way and for the same reasons. In other words, what Mary is doing in her Magnificat is rightfully worshiping God. But the elements and the basis and the expression of her worship is a model for us. The same content is true to her then as it is for us now. Now, a little background. Chapter 1, verses 5 through 23, talk about uh, the angel Gabriel's visit to Zechariah. If you remember, Zechariah was ministering in the temple, and the angel announced to uh, to him that his wife Elizabeth, who was uh, on in years, would bear a son. And, of course, Zechariah... was shocked about the whole thing, and he didn't quite believe it, and so he ended up being muted by God. And then the next section, verses 24 through 25, it tells us about Baron Elizabeth and how she does conceive. And then verses 26 through 38, here we have the angel of God, uh, uh, angel of Gabriel visiting Mary, and listen to what he says specifically. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. That is no small word from God. That is a very weighty message from an angel. I mean, so there's a lot of shock and awe going on here. She's taken back by all this. And then the angel continues, look at verse 36, and behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. You see how God even brings in Elizabeth to help Mary out, to see this is what I'm doing. And here's evidence of what I'm doing. Here is the one who was barren, who's now with child. There's nothing impossible with God. So you can trust him. So Mary, hearing those words, gets up and hurries to where Elizabeth, her cousin, lives in the hill country of Judea, about, they say, about 60 miles or so from where she was um, in Nazareth. Now, when she gets there, she finds Elizabeth six months pregnant, and Zechariah mute. And you can imagine the kind of questions and discussions they had over the next three months. Here are two 
first-time mothers, right? You moms, remember the time was your first baby? All the questions you had, all the discussions, and all the things that, I mean, angels were talking to them, angels were prophesying, all these things were happening. There's a lot to talk about during that time, all right? And guess what? Zechariah's over there going, I can't say anything because I'm mute, but he's taking it all in. And then upon meeting Elizabeth, her son, who would be John the Baptist, sensing the presence of the Messiah, leapt in her womb. And when Elizabeth praises God, recognizing Mary's son in the womb as being her Lord and Messiah, Mary bursts forth into praise. And this is where we have the Magnificat. Now, friends, this song is full of Old Testament terminology and theology. As such, it parallels Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter 2. And some have challenged the content of the song, basically saying, how could a young peasant girl have such a grasp of the Old Testament? It just seems unthinkable. I mean, there are uneducated people out there in the, in the farm country. But they forget the Hebrew tradition that all pious Israelites from childhood days knew by heart songs from the Old Testament. And when they sat together as families, as they sat together as fellow Jews, they would recite the Word of God. They would sing these songs. And especially if you were a young girl, you're attracted to and you would be encouraged to recite the songs that ladies would sing. So Mary was steeped in the poetical literature of her nation, and therefore her song is a reflection of that literature and of that theology, along with her own personal experiences as a child of God. So here again is Mary's song that is a beautiful picture of Christmas worship that is rooted in God and should drive us to worship in the same way and for the same reason. So let's begin by just noticing how Mary worships, how Mary worships her God. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. In good poetic form, Mary identifies herself using two synonymous words, soul and spirit. These words describe her inner being, her heart. Remove the presence of the physical flesh, and you're left with the soul, with the spirit, with the inner man, with the heart. And so these are words that the scripture uses to describe the same thing. They're, they're, they're issues of the heart. And so we could say here that Mary, in her heart, is magnifying the Lord. Mary, in her heart, is rejoicing in God, her Savior. That's where this is coming from. So this idea, then, of, of magnify... It's the idea of magnify. In fact, the Jerome's Vulgate, which is the Latin translation um, of the New Testament, begins with the word magnificat. And that's where this title comes from. In the Greek, that word magna that is used now to describe what is going on here is at the front end of the verse, which means it's dominant, which means that's where the emphasis is. And it should be actually, it's the word, Greek word, mega, all right? And the idea there is to make great, to make his name great, to make uh, his reputation great, to give him great praise. It is saying that the Lord is worthy to be magnified or glorified. So therefore, she would be saying, my heart desires to make him great, to give him glory. Now, it's the same thing that the Apostle Paul is saying years later in, as he's writing to the Philippian church. Listen to Philippians 1.20. You probably are very familiar with this. He says, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored or magnified or glorified in my body, whether by life or by death. So that was Paul's goal was to magnify and to glorify, or as the word here in the ESV is translated, honored. That was his aim in ministry. And then a few verses later in our text, at verse 58, 
Just notice what it says there. Speaking now of Elizabeth and her neighbors. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great or mega mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. So the same magnificent or mega Lord has shown great or mega mercy to Elizabeth. This is, this is the, the Lord who is mega. He is great. He is worthy of her praise. That's what she's saying. That's what she's getting to. And then she says, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. So this is poetical language. First line and the second line are pretty much synonymous, but they're being revealed a little differently. So that the parallelism of poetry indicates that her joy is praise that exalts in God. It communicates her joy in being dependent on God for her salvation. Now, the Westminster Shorter Catechism begins with this question. What is the chief end of man? And what is the answer? There's a few of you that have gone through the catechisms, right? The chief end of man is what? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. And then a few years back, there was a pastor by the name of John Piper who kind of looked at that and studied it. And he thought, you know what? I want to put a little twist on this. I think a proper biblical twist. And I think it was helpful for the body of Christ. But he says... He says it a little differently. He says the answer to that question is the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. He's just emphasizing the, the by, the means by which we do it. And then he reworks that sentence into a life's passion, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And friends, that is the essence of what Mary is saying. John Piper didn't make this up. He didn't wake up one day and say, I've got this great idea. I've got this concept that is new. God gave it to me. No, Mary said it here. This is the essence of what she is saying. Look again at what specifically she says. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Glorify God. Enjoy him forever. Magnify him. Rejoice in your relationship with him. Look at the things he has done for you. Look how great he is. The third stanza of the well-known song, Away in the Manger, which the kids sang up here so well, says, Be near me, Lord Jesus, I ask thee to stay. Close by me forever and love me, I pray. Bless all the dear children in thy tender care and fit us for heaven to live with thee there. Now, in an attempt to be more contemporary with the English language, some have taken this Away in the Manger song, in particular that last sentence, and rather than say, and fit us for heaven to live with him there, they say, and take us to heaven to live with you there. But that misses the point of what the writer of Away in a manger is saying. The idea of fit means to be qualified for, to be prepared for, to be ready for. Now hear this. If my soul doesn't magnify or glorify the Lord, and if my soul, my spirit doesn't rejoice or delight in God my Savior, then I'm not fit for heaven. In fact, if I were to go there, I would be very uncomfortable because I would not want to be bowing down and worshiping Christ. I would not want to magnify him because my heart has been other places. So what Mary is saying here is what every true child of God does because they know who their Savior is. And you magnify the Lord and you rejoice in him. And all of the things that God is doing through our lives is preparing us for that time when we step into heaven, and he is fitting us for that so that when we're in heaven, we're not thinking, so what am I supposed to do here? You know, people ask you, so what do you do when you get to heaven? Well, listen, as believers, trust me, we, we are going to worship our God and Savior. We are going to rejoice in him. There's going to be practical things that are going on, but we're not going to be bored Whereas the other people, I mean this honestly, are going to be burning. We're going to be worshiping. We're going to be celebrating. Now this is 
how she worships her God. Is that how you worship? When you get up every day, are you saying, Lord, my, my desire today is to magnify you, is to glorify you, is to honor you? And today I'm going to rejoice that you are my God and Savior. Yes, there may be difficulties I'm, I'm going to face, just like Mary's going to face some difficulties, and she's heard some very difficult things, and things that are just like, wow, this is incredible, and how is this going to happen? And yet she's rejoicing in God who is her Savior. Can you say that? And is that what you do? Now you see, there's, there's a need for things that are of great importance, that are, might want to say, rooted in the Old Testament, that feed us so that we actually can magnify the Lord and we can rejoice in the fact that he is our God and Savior. And so we move now from how she worships God to the question, why Mary worships her God? And that's the rest of this Magnificat. Why is it that she worships? As Luke continues... He, <clears throat> His records of events, we see that Mary is, uh, is growing greatly in her opinion of God. She's been told much. She has experienced much, and she's still trying to take it all in. Eventually, after the child is born, in Luke chapter 2, 19, this is what we're told. And Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. All this stuff was happening so fast and was so incredible that she just mesmerized. And just pondering and thinking it through. How incredible God is. But now, in verse 48, we find the conjunction for that sets off the reasons why Mary is worshiping her God. She gives three reasons, and they're all connected, I want to say, to an activity of God. First, notice the eyes of the Lord. For the Lord has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. The eyes of the Lord have been gracious to Mary. Literally, this, this idea of his looking is the idea of his looking with care and with the intention of doing something about what he sees. Now, we might say to someone, hey, listen, we care. But that is empty unless we are ready for action, unless we're ready to satisfy a need, unless we are somehow ready to sacrifice our own time and our own agendas and our own desires because there is someone who is needy. Here's God looking down on Mary, and he is looking down with care, but it's a care that is ready to act and is already acting on her behalf, and that's what she is now reflecting on. That is how God works with his children. When he looks, he looks to be gracious, he looks to be merciful, yet he looks to see that his redemptive plan is actually at work. Now notice also in this little section here the me statements. She says, from now on people will call me blessed. God has done great things for me. Now, she's not being full of herself. She's just she's praising God for, for what he has done that she is not deserving. You can say, well, I'm a Christian. That could be arrogant or that could be, I don't deserve this. But this is who I am. This is what he's done for me. He had seen that Mary was from a humble family. He had seen that Mary is engaged to a carpenter in fact, I would suggest and consider the fact that maybe he wasn't a carpenter in the, in the ways that we would think of it, as in like sawing pieces of wood, that that word actually is a word that is used to describe those who handle bricks, those who handle stone. He was a common laborer, okay? He was a construction worker, along with his dad. And that he lived in the demeaned town, or she lived in the demeaned town of Nazareth. Now, friends, the eyes of the Lord are looking down on her circumstances. He watches his people and he looks at their circumstances. He sees and he knows and he is gracious. Now, friends, if there's anyone in God's created world that had the right to ask the question, is there anyone out there who knows how I feel? It would be a teenage girl, number one, 
and one who's just been told that you're going to be with child. And you just, just go back to what the angel said to her. All these things about who this child was going to be. Does anyone understand what I'm going through? Well, the answer, of course, is yes. God does. The comforting thing for all believers is this. He sees us. He knows us. But hear this. Even more than that, he indwells us. If God were fickle toward us, don't you think that he would remove himself from us when we rebelled against him? Or when we chose to lie rather than tell the truth? All right, I'm gone. I'm done. Or, or maybe when we get angry because we're selfish and we're not doing what God wants us to do, he says, you know what? I've had enough of you. I'm, I'm out of here. But that is not what God does. One of, the, one of the wonderful treasures that we have, one of the promises that we have, one of the comforting things that we have is, yes, that he sees us, he knows us, but by virtue of his Holy Spirit, all of his children, he indwells. So he truly is with us. He not only sees us, he is very much with us. And that's not because of the fact that we're doing works to keep him there. That is because that is part of his mercy for those who fear him from generation to generation. You and I do not deserve to have God residing in us in the person of the Holy Spirit. We don't deserve to have the kind of caring gaze on our lives that he gives us, but he does. We are the recipients of his mercy. And so we're comforted by the words of Paul even as he writes to the Colossian church, speaking about the riches of the gospel and this is what he says, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Don't forget the residing presence of God in your heart if you're a child of his. He is very, very much with you. You don't have to touch him. You don't have to feel him. You don't have to hear him. You don't have to smell him. You know because that's what scripture says. And because that's what Scripture says, you believe it to be true, and you function with that paradigm in mind, and you say, he's with me, he knows me, he sees me. Now, friends, how do you respond to this, this whole idea of the eyes of the Lord looking at you? For some, it brings conviction. For some, it brings comfort. For some, it's condemnation because he sees and he's, he's there when I'm sinning. And for others, it's encouragement because he, he's there when I'm going through difficulty and trial. For others, it's panic because my life is exposed to him. For others, it's praise. You cannot hide anything from God, can you? That could be comforting, but it can also be concerning. The reality is that God's omniscience, meaning the fact that he, he knows everything, can be for the Christian both unnerving and encouraging. He is always aware of our circumstances, and we are never out of his sight. Now, for me, I, I learned a lesson a number of years ago when I was traveling in Russia. I've shared this with you before um, at, at another time, and I can't remember how long ago it was, but I was in the middle of Russia. I had traveled to a city called Kirochepetsk, and we were going to drive 13 hours to this new city I'd never been to called Ufa. We we're going to do ministry there. And one of our Russian brothers that didn't speak a lick of English um, drove us 13 hours for the most part at night. And it was night because it got dark at like 3 o'clock, right? So it was like the whole time was just like dark, dark, dark. And then it started pouring down with rain and thunderstorms. And, of course, the car breaks down. And we're out in the middle of Russia, out in the middle of nowhere. This is Siberia. And, you know, and there's a part of me that's just like, okay, Lord, um, I'm just going to have to trust you. <laughs> you know, I mean, what more can you do? You can't flash out my American Express card, you know. There, that's going to solve everything. No, you just got to say, okay, Lord, how are you going to solve this? And our, our Russian brother, he's like, all right. I'll be back. You know, he waves it at me and isn't the uh, person with me and it's pouring down with rain. And we're like, okay, where is he running to? And it's, it's raining. He just walks out with a coat on and he comes back about an hour later or so. He says, okay, you know. And, and, and the car gets towed and we go back to some shop. This is like in the middle of the night. Some guy was up late and happened to have a 
shop there and walked in, and God just provided. Now, for me, that was just like, you know, Lord, why, why should I even be worrying about this? And yet, in my humanity, I am. And yet, at the same time, he just demonstrates the fact that he is constantly aware. He's constantly with us. So God may see that we are wandering off the path at times. And so he may send us correction and rebuke and reminders to help us to get back on the path. And sometimes they may seem harsh, but behind the harshness is gracious mercy at work because God truly cares enough for his children to do something about their condition and about their circumstance. Now, friends, isn't that reason to burst into praise? That even in the midst of my wandering, God is at work restoring me, trying to get me back. And we should respond by magnifying the Lord for his faithfulness. We should respond by rejoicing in the ways our God and Savior truly satisfies our soul. His eyes look at us, and he is gracious. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Mary, is not, she's not just focused on herself. She's focused on all who would follow. God is speaking through her greatly. So not only do we see the eyes of the Lord, now we move into the next one, and that is the arm of the Lord has been strong. The arm of the Lord has been strong. He has shown strength with his arm. The arm of the Lord speaks of God's strength, his might, and his power. So how does God show his strength with his arm? Let's just read this little section here, and then we're going to kind of break it down together. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. And so there's two groups, really, that are contrasted here. I'll call them the haves and the haves-nots. He scattered the proud. He brings down the mighty. He sends the rich away empty. And the have-nots would be he exalts the humble. He fills the hungry. Christ brings satisfaction to his own. Nothing can be or will be a substitute for satisfaction in Christ. No money, no power, no position, no fame, no pleasure. The point here is this. The proud, the mighty, and the rich will spend Christmas Chasing the lure and the hope of satisfaction. But they will come up empty. Instead, they will be singing the song with the Rolling Stones, I can't get no satisfaction. But I tried. And I tried. And I tried. And I tried. I can't get no. I can't get no. I can't get no satisfaction. But this is how the ungodly function. They're pursuing satisfaction. Even at Christmas time, oh, I got this great gift I'm going to get you. You're going to love it. You know, I'm going to go to this party where all these friends are. We're going to have such a great time. It's going to be fantastic. And all these different things that are all part of the Christmas season, presents and tinsel and music and atmosphere and parties. And they try and they try and they try but only Christ can satisfy. How many of you parents know what it's like? You know, you, you get your child this, this incredible gift, and you think, oh, this is going to be fantastic. And, you know, on the morning of Christmas, they, they turn the thing open, and they open it. It's like, oh, wow, they play with it. And it's like half an hour later, it's old hat. It satisfied for a little bit, but it really didn't satisfy. You got joy for a little bit, but it didn't last. Christ brings lasting, joyful, ongoing satisfaction. And people are hungry for that. But notice also the hungry he fills with good things. Now it's worth noting that in this little section of scripture, there is actually a, a rhetorical device that's being used it's called the prophetic past tense. Just notice that all the expressions beginning at verse 51 are all in the past tense. He has scattered, he has brought down, he has sent the rich away empty. He has, he has, he has. This is what is called the prophetic past tense. When, 
when prophecy about the future is given in such a way that it is presented as if it has already taken place. So now when Mary speaks, her words are rooted in the evidence of the Old Testament and the evidence of the past, but they point to the certainty of the future. So they're both historical and they are prophetical. So let's just take, take them one at a time here. Verse 51, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's done that in the past and he has yet to do it in her context, okay? Now we can think in the Old Testament about a number of people that would match this description. I'll throw a few out just so you can grasp it maybe. Pharaoh who thought himself to be the center of the universe, God brought down with the plagues and ultimately by drowning his army in the sea. The story of of Esther has this character, this horrible, evil character by the name of Haman who is seeking to be elevated, ultimately to, to take the throne is what he would love to do. And so he plots against the Jews very carefully. And not only that, so confident in their demise because his His king and ruler has actually affirmed a day for the Jews to be executed. He has built a scaffolding for the hanging of Mordecai, his enemy. But God, in his miraculous, wonderful way, turns everything upside down. And Haman ends up being hanged on the scaffolding that he had prepared for his enemy. He scatters the proud in the thoughts of their heart. The thoughts of their heart. They're boasting in the thoughts of their heart. But probably the most significant one would be a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, who was so full of himself. Now, he was a, a king in Babylon. The Jews were living in Babylon at that time, and this is still during the time when Daniel is, is part of that, that scenario. But we have Nebuchadnezzar, who attributed himself all that God had done in Babylon to make it strong by saying this, Daniel 40, or 4 and verse 30. Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And the next few words recorded for us should send shivers down our spine. Verse 31, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the king of men and gives it to whom he will. And immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. My friends, that's powerful stuff. And as Mary, who is steeped in Old Testament tradition, in the the words and the stories of the Old Testament, is thinking about events, she is saying he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Here's the proud. And what has God done? He has scattered them. And also Mary is not only looking back, but in a prophetical way she's looking forward and she foreshadows the proud heart to their demise. And one example of that is found in Acts 12. His name is Herod Agrippa. He's the ruler in Jerusalem at that point in time. And here's what we have in the record of his death. Verse 21 of Acts 12. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat among the thr- upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God, not a man! And immediately the angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. (laughs) Wow. You just say, this is what God does. This is how he works. And as Mary is singing this song, it is prophetical, but it's also rooted in the Old Testament. And then we have the words of Christ, and then the words of the apostles. Listen to this, Matthew 23, 12. Christ says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And James says in 4, 6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And friends, that principle still is at work today. It still rings true. So many are proud in their hearts, laughing and mocking and scorning the Christ who is our God and Savior. 
And they think that they're so sophisticated, that, that Christians are so simple-minded, that they have to have a crunch to, to kind of rest on, and all those kinds of arguments. They're self-sufficient, and they think of themselves as their own God, but they are in grave danger. Why? Because the Lord scatters the proud in the thoughts of their heart. These are sobering words. Yet they are words that celebrate how majestic God is and how powerful he is. Look at verse 52. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. The one that comes to mind in this particular uh, example, talk about the mighty who are brought down as a man by the name of Belshazzar. Again, from the book of Daniel, he is a ruler there. He's called, um, or Nebuchadnezzar is called his father, but the idea is that he was a king after Nebuchadnezzar. So he's a Babylonian king, but he chose to hold a feast in celebration to himself and to the gods of Babylon while the city of Babylon was surrounded by the armies of the Medes and the Persians. So rather than kind of get his army together and make sure they're protected, he, he is now confident in the fact that his city is impregnable, that the gates will not fall. And he had amassed enough food to provide for a two-year siege. And so he has this incredible celebration. And during the celebration, he brings out the vessels of gold and silver that were taken from the Jewish temple. And by means of blasphemy, by means of purposely doing what he was doing, he offered praise to the gods of Babylon. And then all of a sudden, a bodiless hand starts writing something on the wall. And here's what we find recorded, Daniel 5 and verse 6. And the king's color changed. And his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. Sounds like the first time I ever preached right there. <laughs> and immediately Belshazzar declared, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Enter into the story Daniel once again. He's God's servant, and he interprets the dream. And this is what he says, Belshazzar, God has brought your kingdom to an end. You have been weighed in the balances and been found wanting. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And that very night, the Medes and the Persians entered the city. They, by virtue of technology, they were able to divert the waters of the Euphrates, and they literally waded in. They just took over the city. There was, there was no resistance. Everyone was drunk. And so Belshazzar dies, and Darius, who's now the Medo-Persian king in Babylon, retains da Daniel to serve as the chief administrator of the kingdom. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted these or those of humble estate. God's ways are incredible, aren't they? Now, that's an Old Testament example, and here is Mary who's, who's speaking with certainty about what was yet to come, but it's rooted in an Old Testament context where, where God has proven himself. And Mary looks ahead and she anticipates the reality of her son, the Messiah, loosening his grip on heaven and humbly coming to earth, taking the form of man and enduring the suffering of the cross, yet humility is the path toward his exaltation. Notice what it says in Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What Mary sings in her mind is a done deal. It is already certain. And it is borne out with the words of Christ. Here's the question. Who will inherit the, the, the earth? What's the answer? The meek. The meek. And listen to the words of the Apostle Peter. 
1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Who is truly the mighty one? It's not those who think they're mighty. It is the sovereign God of this universe that she adores with praise, magnifies and rejoices in. It fuels her to be able to do that. And then we have the rich, the rich. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Mary's quoting here Psalm 107, verse 9, which says, For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. And we can think of other Old Testament texts that bear the same truth. Psalm 37, 4, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. It doesn't say, you want the desires of your heart, this is how you get it. He says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And what that means is that when you delight in God, he changes your desires to be conformed to his desires, and that's what you want, because that's really what you need. How about Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2? As the deer pants for the flowing streams, so, my, 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 so pants my soul for you, O God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. So as Mary sings her song, she anticipates even the rebuke that her son will give to the Laodicean church. Now, she doesn't have that particular church in mind, but she's looking ahead at the certainty of these things being true. This is what it says about Laodicean church, Revelation 3, 17 and 18. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may, be clo- you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Friends, how, how our self-sufficiency blinds us to our desperate need for Christ to satisfy us. See, we're self-sufficient, and because we're self-sufficient, we don't think that we need to find any satisfaction in Christ. But the reality is, over and over again, as you open up God's Word, God reveals the condition and the nature of man. He says, your only hope is in me. And that's what Mary is singing here. This is what she's praising God for, and this is how she's reflecting. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. So think of the many gifts that he promises his children. Just think through the the gospel of John. I am the bread of life. I am the one who satisfies your thirst with living water. He gives us his word to satisfy our souls. He gives us his spirit to live in us, to comfort us, to counsel us, to guide us, to convict us. He gives us the body of Christ that we're, where we can exercise and experience and benefit from the one and others. He gives us gifts to serve him in, uh, along with those who are his. He gives us his gospel to steward carefully and faithfully for his glory. But he also gives us himself. We are the recipients of good things. He has filled the hungry with good things. But the rich, those who don't think that they need anything, he sends away empty. Now, friends, that's quite a, that's quite a catalog, isn't it? Here is the arm of the Lord working in history, working in, I want to say, our history, the time from Mary even to us, and God will continue to work with his mighty arm to bring about these realities and to fulfill these kinds of promises to his people. We've seen the eyes of the Lord. We've seen the arm of the Lord. Now I want you to notice the word of the Lord has been faithful. Verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. So the merciful hand of God has been faithful to keep his word, 
what he has spoken and what he has spoken specifically to his chosen people. That would be Israel, his servant Israel. He has not failed them. Now, has Israel ever gone through difficult times? Yes. Have they been incredibly dark times where, where even the, the Israelites or the Jews are saying, God, where are you? Absolutely. But ultimately, he has never failed. He has maintained his promise to Israel. And Mary is looking back on God's covenant promises to Israel that begin in Genesis 12, 3, where he says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and to him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That is the covenant promise that is repeated again and again in the book of Genesis to Abraham, to Isaac, and then to Jacob. It's the promise that was leaned on and repeated throughout Israel's history. It's the promise that they held on to regarding their future and the coming of their Messiah. And the word of the Lord would still be faithful to Mary in the days to come. Simeon would say to her some hard words. This comes again from Luke chapter 2, verse 33 through 35. Behold, the child is appointed, this is actually verse 34, behold, the child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And in parentheses here, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. And of the parentheses, so that so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Her son would die on a cursed tree before her eyes as the ransom for many. It would be hard for Mary. There would be sorrow, but in the end, it would be glorious. Jesus would be the mercy that Israel and the world needs. He would be the ultimate sacrifice that fulfills all the Old Testament sacrifices. All of them pointed to that sacrifice once for all. He would be the God and Savior of all who put their faith and trust in him. The word of the Lord has been faithful, and the word of the Lord will still be faithful, Mary is saying. And for us, the word continues to be faithful. And friends, this is a song that models for us the way we are to glorify God and enjoy him. Every time we open up his word, we, we see how he has been acting in history. We see that his eyes are ever on his children, and as such, he extends mercy to them time and time again. We see that his arm is constantly at work, scattering the proud, bringing down the mighty, and sending the rich away empty so that the humble will be exalted and the hungry will be filled with good things. We see that his word is never failing, always bringing about what he has promised. And friends, that drives us to glorify the Lord and to enjoy him forever. Friends, I think our prayer should be that people who are hungry, who are looking for satisfaction, will press their faces on the windows of our church and the windows of our families and our homes and our lives and ask the question, how can we have that same joy? How can we have that same satisfaction as you have? See, Mary was resting in what she already knew to be true about God, but she was also looking ahead based on that and prophesying what he was going to be doing with his people through his Messiah. Now, I want us to think just about this in some fresh ways. I want to ask a question as we bring things to a close here. How can we begin to sing a song of praise like this? I mean, if, if, if God did some things in your life, if, if God some, you know, brought some miraculous circumstances in your life or things that shocked you, that, that just kind of woke you up and said, wow, God is really at work, would you be able to put together a song like this? And I want to tell you, it may not be exactly like Mary, but there are some things that we can learn so that you could. First of all, I would, I would just encourage you to do this. Number one, saturate your mind with Scripture. I mean, isn't, isn't this what she's pulling from? Isn't this where her confidence comes from? Isn't this where the examples are? Mary could sing a song like this because she knew her Old Testament Scriptures. For us, the issue is do we know 
the Bible. Now, I'm not here to grade everyone on a curve based on the Bible. The more you know it, the more you read it, the more you glean on it, the more you study it, the more you rest in it, the more you sing it, the more you share it, the more you trust it, the more you live it, the easier it would be to reflect the song and praise and glory to this incredible God who is your Savior. Secondly, from Mary, we learn to humble ourselves under our sovereign God. He may desire you to do something that you're not expecting. Something that you don't feel adequate for. He may bring about changes that will rock your world. But get this, he is still on the throne. I just, just want to remind you of something. I've said it many times, I'll say it again because it's so helpful, it's so important. There may be chaos on the earth, but there's always stability in heaven. Your world may be rocked. It may be turned upside down. But there's a sovereign God who's fully aware, fully in control, fully understanding what is happening, seated on his throne in heaven. And in the chaos of your world, don't you want to rest on someone who's not affected by that chaos? So humble yourself under your sovereign God, even though maybe you don't comprehend all that is happening, or maybe what's before you seems so incredibly difficult. Remember, his plan of redemption didn't begin on Christmas Day. His plan of redemption began before the world was created. He chose us in him before the creation of the world. And then the Old Testament, we have these, this sacrificial system and the Passover and the worship in the temple. It was all pointing to this Messiah. And then Jesus comes at Christmas. And ultimately, when he comes at Christmas, he is being incarnated into this world in the form of the man who would ultimately go into ministry. And then while at the end of that ministry, he would go to a cross and he would hang there as a sacrifice once for all. That is God's redemptive plan. But God's redemptive plan isn't finished yet. The redemption's been accomplished, but the actual application of that is still going on because he has his children here who are yet to be glorified. And so his promises continue his purposes continue. His eyes and his gaze and his, his, his confidence and his purpose through us continues. He wants us to continue to praise him for who he is and to glorify him as our God and Savior. And we do that by humbling ourselves under his sovereign rule. There's a third thing that flows out of those, and that would be this. God calls us to be thankful Praise him. When you look at all the good things he has given you, when you see how he has brought you from death to life, from bondage to freedom, from darkness to light, from being enemies to being full-blown members of his family, you can't help but being thankful. You can't help but praising him for his goodness. So Christmas, friends, it's about remembering what God has done in the bringing of a son to the earth in the form of a child. That's the event. But it's about what God would do in sending that son to a cross to pay for our sin. But it's also about God's continuing work in and through his people. He still wants to fill the hungry with good things. He still wants his gospel to be what satisfies man's hunger. And it's an opportunity to praise God with thankful hearts because of his mercy toward us. We are totally undeserving, yet we are totally blessed. Mary was totally undeserving, but she was totally blessed. We serve a great God, and our hearts magnify him as Lord and rejoice in the fact that he is our God and Savior. May this Christmas be an opportunity for you to remember God, his plan, and his son Jesus Christ, and the present indwelling of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your lives, and to magnify him, and to rejoice over 
the good gifts that he gives you, primarily himself. Lord, help us today. It is so incredible to, to read this song and to contemplate all the things that were happening in Mary's life. And yet she, gleaning from what she knows about you, about the circumstances she's experiencing and what the promise is all about because her son is to be this Messiah. She wraps all that together in this song of praise. Lord, may we worship you as Mary worships you. And Lord, may the reason for our worship Lord, reflect the same truths and principles that your eyes are always on us, that your arm is always for us, and that your word is always feeding us. Thank you, Lord, for those incredible promises. Help us to rest in them, to celebrate them, but Lord, also to turn in praise to you for all that you do and all that you've done. And Lord, I just pray if there's someone here today who's still not one of your children, that your Holy Spirit would be at work, that the, the things that are being shared here would, would begin just to come together and, and, and that your Holy Spirit would, would bring sense to them in the heart of that individual, that your gospel would take root, and Lord, that you would draw that person to yourself. We give you all the praise, all the glory, in your precious name.